Welcome back to Finnegan's Take. This is Conversation 3, in which we discuss Jerry's initial years in the 7th District, one of the most dangerous police districts in Chicago and the country. Jerry details his journey as a rookie cop learning how to police and survive in what some consider to be a war zone. Here's that conversation. Let's talk about Inglewood and District 7. You want to go into 7. Do you have an understanding of how policing was handled in 7 before you got there? Meaning, as a rookie cop, are you going, I'm entering this very challenging district because policing has been ineffective, they tried something new, does stuff like that even enter your mind or you just, you don't even think about that, you're just going into this district because no. it's a challenge? You know, I knew it was one of the busiest districts in the city, one of the highest crime rates. Districts that were smaller, the second district and the seventh district, had a high concentration of people in smaller area. The crime rate was very, very high there. Drugs, a lot of mental illness. I knew the background district by talking to people in the academy, other instructors, trying to find out which was a busy district to go to. The thing was, you wanted to be the police. You wanted to be the real police and learn how to be the real police by going to those districts. So seven, it was in proximity to where I lived in the eighth district. It didn't disappoint me. When you say it didn't disappoint, was it more than you expected? I was kind of surprised, I would say, by the amount of crime that was going on there, by the amount of violence. I was surprised, but something that I love being around, not seeing the victims of the violence, but because it wasn't a retirement place. You were working there from the time you got in your car to the time you went home. There would be nights in the summertime, you'd get 20 or 24 radio calls, person shot, and with a gun, numerous times. Fights on the street, uh, somebody stabbed to death. There was always something going on. There was really the only time I noticed that there was like a lull in, in the activity there was when it was very, very cold out and snowy. And that would only last for a few hours. We got acclimated to the weather and then they were back out doing it. Is there a point in that first year, those first months, or anywhere in that window of time where you're seeing this crime on a daily basis and you're asking yourself, are the police doing this the right way or is this just managing chaos you get to a point where you're like well this is just fucked and we're just managing chaos there's no way to stop the crime here or do you have a feeling that things can get better if it was done this way or is it hopeless and there was a side of you that's there doing the good and controlling stuff and you know, putting bad guys away, getting a little payback for the good people, making it safe for them, victims, and paying back the bad guys for some of the stuff that he did, raping a woman or children. I didn't feel so much like the gangbangers were shooting each other. That somebody skid. It took me a while to think that way. But initially, I didn't give a shit about the gangbangers. I could care less. They wanted to kill each other. They knew what they were getting into. So, I mean, it really didn't bother me. You had small victory. You know, you got a guy who knocked a lady down or hit uh, or shot somebody or robbed them at gunpoint, and you got them guys. It was a feeling of elation to get somebody like that, knowing that you helped somebody. There were a lot of great people who lived there. You know, I mean, they are victims of their environment, including the children. Uh, and I always said it to some of the guys I worked with. I said, take these kids out of here. 
They come to Iowa, come to Kansas, and you got a different person because they got a chance. Not like we're growing up in Syria where they see the same shit day in and day out. Stuff that would blow you away, you know? I saw some kids looking down the gangway on one of the streets I was driving down. So I stopped, I get out of the car and I walk up and there's this guy and he's got a dog and he's got the dog uh, with a rope around its neck and it's cinched up and he's got the dogs by its back legs and its tail and he's fucking the dog. You know, hold, I, hold on, hold on. You're not sure what he's doing, but when you get up there... Oh no, when I seen him in that gangway and I heard the dog growling and yelping, and he was, I don't know what, you know, which hole he had it in, but he was fucking the dog. I went down the gangway and grabbed him by his scruff of his neck. And these kids are kind of like laughing and they thought it was hilarious. Some of them, some of them were just standing there. And then these are kids, you know, I mean, not big kids, little kids. And this guy's a fucking moron and he's fucking the dog. What are you doing? He goes, it's my dog. I'll do what I want. How do you know the dog wants to be fucked by you? This guy was out of his mind. Seeing these types of things, at what point are you getting calloused? Where's the point or yeah, moment just, where you go, this is just a train yeah, wreck? It, it didn't happen initially, but eventually I did get calloused. I think every other time it's calloused, and it's hard not to. We see people at their worst. Unfortunately, you don't see them at their best. They see a guy shot, they get knocked over there, and put his hand on my leg, help me. And I call for an ambulance. And this guy wouldn't have two words for me any other way. He knows he's on his way out. He wants me to help him. He wants to speak to me. Paramedics get there. They roll him over. His lungs just hanging up. He shot with a shotgun. He died. They put him in the ambulance. He was dead. They tried to resuscitate him. They put an ambulance bag on him. The guy was gone. I mean, he was actually gray. He had lost so much blood. I saw a 12-year-old kid cut in half by a train. You see stuff like that. The children, that bothers you. A little baby that was killed in an auto accident hit the back of a seat with hard plastic and the old cars blew his head open. Wasn't in a child restraint. I don't even know if he was belted in. It was just an infant. Call of a suspicious older. You go there. You know, obviously, it was a prostitute and had a plastic Christmas tree base. You know, the pole shoved all the way in her vagina, all the way up into her chest cavity. Who does that shit? This is baptism by fire. Yeah, stuff that you didn't think was possible. I want to go back to this. What is the police department's mission in this window of time or era? Correct me if I'm wrong. Leroy Martin is the superintendent of police. Does the police department do a good job or did they at this time of evaluating how they're moving forward as an organization saying we're getting this terribly wrong over here and we need to do it better? Or is the mission down to somebody like you at this point in your career just fucking go out there every day? and be a cop, do your thing. You're never told, this is the mission. This is what we're going to do. You're the police. You learn how to be a police from the guy who trains you. And then when you go out there on your own, after you're done with your training officer, uh, you hone your skills. You try to do good every day. You try to go out. Sometimes on roll call, they give it a bullshit. They call it movers and parkers. So moving violations, parking violations. That is revenue for the city. I did that when I, when I first started. You're writing tickets, man, because that's what you're supposed to do. And then after a while, you're thinking, writing these tickets. Stop a lady, goes through a red light. Where are you going? I'm going to work. Hell, fuck, I'm not going to get her a ticket at 7.30 in the morning or 8 o'clock in the morning. She's going to work. There's a million gangbangers out there. There are a bunch of assholes driving around all day. 
I'm going to give them the tickets because the good people, you're costing them money. They got to take a day off from work and you're taking money out of your pocket. The gangbangers, 99% of them don't show up in court anyway, so they're going to get warrants. Winding back a moment, you said that you would let the woman going to work pass and you started focusing on the gangbangers. It's kind of a smart strategy because you're forcing these guys who are criminals, primarily men, into kind of a web, if you will, in that if you can nail them for tickets that they're never going to show up for, that compounds their problems because there's a warrant. They drive all the time, but suspended. That's correct. If you can get them on something small that they're going to blow off, it gives the justice system a chance to snag them in a technicality. In essence, yeah, I guess in the big picture, because truly, sometimes you could use uh, traffic violations as probable cause. So you see a guy do something, you pull him over, you have a driver's license, no. So you cuff him up, he's under arrest, he's driving under a license or suspended license, which means you can search his vehicle where it's controlled by him. So it's called a custodial search of the vehicle because you could tow that vehicle. Guns are dope in there. They're not going to stand around. Don't have a license. They, they don't give a fuck about that. They got a gun. They're running. Or they have dope. They're running. Right away, by put the traffic stop on them. It's a good reason. And you have a legitimate reason to stop them. But you could force them into an action that they didn't want to take until you stopped them you know, by fleeing from you, which leads to other stuff. And you never know. You never know who you're stopping. You could stop some guy who just thought he killed his brother or killed his girlfriend. That's not movie shit. It happens. We stopped the guy, and he had blood all over his clothes, and he had murdered his girlfriend in another district. Traffic is a good thing to initiate other stuff. Those days, more or less, are over. The traffic courts in this window of time are corrupt. We know this. It was later exposed during Operation Greylord. Are you aware of this? No, I had no idea. When you see these judges on the bench, in Neil, honestly, I hated fucking basketball. I hated it. It was a waste of time, honestly. You go down there, and they would continue it, continue it. You're on vacation. You get notified. You get traffic. You get out of this. You're on vacation. When you go in traffic court or even criminal court, how are you treated as a police officer? Most of the time, very respectful. People are people. So everyone has a bad day. You don't know what's going on in someone else's life. So maybe the judge has got something going on. He wants to get out of there. He's short. You're in there and they'll continue, continue. Private attorneys are the same way. They want their money. We're going to get another date. So make sure you bring my money next time or make sure you make a payment. So a lot of those continuances are surely only for the reason so the attorneys get paid by their clients. You know, sometimes people go on vacations. Sometimes the state's not ready or the private attorneys aren't ready because they're looking for some other evidence. So I mean, there's a lot of continuances, and that was one of the things that stuck in my craw. Sometimes they throw cases out, and for good reason. Sometimes not for such good reason. Uh, you had certain attorneys that went to court that never lost. That's impossible. Certain attorneys always went in front of certain judges, don't know how that worked out. They never lost. What's happened in the past, and you read about it some of the stuff that these judges who have been convicted and policemen and attorneys. And the problem is some of these cases just drag on and on and on. That was one of the reasons I stopped writing tickets. I couldn't fucking stand going down there and getting continuances and continuances. I couldn't take it anymore. Start in the 7th District. You get your feet wet. 
it's the most extreme of environments in Chicago for policing. How do you acclimate and move up the ladder? Do you move up the ladder? What are the stages in front of you? I'm brand new. You want to be a sponge, basically learn everything. I got to seven. Every day was something new, exciting. Never had a boring day there. Even when the weather was cold, either when it was pouring rain out, it was continually, continually busy. Overwhelming how busy it was. I would see, for instance, there was a guy who I became friends with, later was one of my supervisors, Jim Eldridge. I met him in the 7th District. He was fresh off of his training, his probation, so he was working days, a one-man car, which you do in Chicago, just like the suburbs do daily, and even at night they do it. But Chicago, they tend to put two-man cars up on afternoons and midnight for a safety factor, but sometimes the manpower is short, and these watch commanders will ask guys to work midnight. Now, the dispatcher is notified that the car is called 1099, which means you're a one-man car. If you're 10-4, you're a two-man unit. So they're not going to send you on any hot jobs if they can help it by yourself. Most of the time, they'll give you most of the paper jobs, like kid doesn't come home, so there's a missing person report, dog bite. COA at the hospital, dead on arrival by the ambulance, but you're still driving around by yourself. Still respond with the other cars to back them up because that's what you do. I'm with my partner, Jim Zigowitz, who, who's my training officer at the time, and I come on to a call on 59th in May. It was actually Jimmy Eldridge calling for an assist. Stopped the guy, and the guy was giving him a hard time about showing his driver's license, which he probably didn't have in the first place. So Jim ended up having a little bit of a tussle with him, cuffed him, and was going to take him to jail. We responded over there because Jim asked for some cars. And when we got there, I saw him and I go, hey, where's your partner? And he goes, I'm working by myself. What do you mean? And I looked at him and I thought he was crazy. Go, what do you mean you're working by yourself? I didn't realize it that when my probation was over, when I went to days, I'd be working by myself. Was that frightening to you or unorthodox or just ill-advised no, in your opinion? No, no. You have to put one-man cars up on days. So you're out there and you're going up and down alleys and you're going up and down side streets and you're encountering five, six guys on a corner. Well, you have to use a little common sense. You're not going to get out and stop five or six guys and start patting them down to see if they have anything on them or you're going to get in a foot chase if you're carrying a gun. If you're lucky, you're going to get in a foot chase. If you're unlucky, he's going to pull the gun out. You're going to have to get in a shootout with him. That's something you don't want to have to do, but it happens. Point is, they put you out there, and you're doing the police work. You're going down side streets. You're going down alleys, and you're looking. You're doing police work. That's what you do. That's what you're out there to do. It's kind of elating at first. You're by yourself. You're like, hey, I don't have anybody telling me what to do. Don't my training officer. I'm off probation. And now you're a police officer. You're not a probationary police officer. So you get that moniker taken off your name, that PPO status. So you now can go out and ride by yourself on days, afternoons, even midnights if you choose to let the watch commander put you in that situation. How long is that probation period? Uh, at the time I came out of the academy, and for a very long time, it was only one year. That included the six months in the academy. So roughly six months on the street, you were off your probation because it gave you accumulated time of one year. Now it is 18 months. Not enough to be on probation? 
initially when they said, well, when you get out of the academy, you get six months, don't get jammed up. You're not going to have protection in the union. You can lose your job very easily. They can fire you at the will. The superintendent with no problem weighs on you a little bit. But on the other hand, you're like, when you get out there, the days fly by, the weeks fly by, the months fly by, even the years, uh, Neil. The first year, it's very fast because you're only out there six months and you already did six months in the academy. When you hit that five-year mark on the police department, your career starts flying. The speed of your career starts going. And Why at five years? For the most part, you're kind of a seasoned guy because, and I shouldn't say that because there's people who have three or four years that work a fast district that are seasoned. And they've seen a lot in those three or four years. But what I found that at five years and then at 10 years, I'm like, wow, where the hell did they go? 15 years. And then I would have had 20 years, but was indicted. It just goes by so fast. Let's wind back to this probation period because you touched on something interesting. So in this probation period, you're not in the union. You're somewhat unprotected. You're paying union dues. So it's easy for them to remove you. It's easier for them to remove you if there's a problem. Are you trying to go out and be the best police officer that you know to be? Or are you a little bit hesitant because you just want to get over this six-month hump, this window of time? Or are you, Jerry Finnegan, like, well, I'm going to go out every day and let the chips fall where they may because I'm going to do what's right by being a police officer? Or are you held back a little bit? Um, no, unfortunately, I was probably that a person that said, let the chips fall where they may. And in hindsight, I wish I would have been the person that kind of held back because I didn't mind going out there and going a hundred percent every day because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be the police, I wanted to be in Chicago. And I just felt that that was what you did. And then this was by example. When I went to the 7th District, they had a little name they gave everybody that worked in the 7th District, and it started with some old-timers, and they started, and they called you an Inglewood Ranger. We're Inglewood Rangers, and and I and I just kind of laughed about it, kind of funny, but they made some t-shirts off and stuff, and I mean, you know, it was a joke amongst us, but Neil, I have to say, when I worked around the 11th District, going further in my career, and in other districts in the city, those guys were tight-knit, too. They stuck together, these police officers. They backed each other up. I saw the camaraderie. There were some arguments among some guys because they loved each other wrong or they didn't like each other. Some of the women didn't like the other women, whatever. But for the most part, the police were the police, and you had a job to do. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Back to this probation period, you say you wish you weren't as cavalier. Most people would probably play it really safe until they got through that six-month probation period. You didn't. Was there anything in that window of time that got you into trouble, or was it to your benefit? My training officer, not only was it his responsibility to teach me how to be a policeman, it was his responsibility to protect me as a new guy and to ensure that I did not get jammed up. He would give you the the talk. And that was, don't do this. 
don't be beating on people because you're going to fuck your career up. You're going to get fired or worse, and worse is going to prison. The senior guys would, especially your training officer when you're brand new, they're looking out for your interests. They want to give you the best advice. And you look at them and you can see the way they conduct themselves. Jim Zigwitz was very professional with the Marines. Hard as nails, man, this guy, but level-headed. He didn't push his buttons out there. People didn't push his buttons. They wanted to tussle. He tussled. He'll fight with him, cuff him up. He would talk to people and treat them respectful. And that's how he told me to do, you know, treat them respectful. He said, even if you're disrespectful, you don't want to go down to their level because it's just going to reflect on you. You're going to get a bad name. If you start putting your hands on people, it's not worth it. Don't make it personal. When you get out there, it's easy to, let's say, sort of fall into that trap of someone's going to get smart with you. They're going to motherfuck you. So you're going to motherfuck them back because you don't want someone talking to you like that. And all those bullshit TV shows and movies, and they're talking real nice to each other and on the street. I don't know where that's at. It's TV. It's not on the streets because you'll get guys that are like, hey, fuck you and this, that. Now, those guys, they went to jail. And most of the time, they went to jail and they were sore. Let's put it this way. You didn't want to get into a shouting match or every day with somebody. And people have bad days, just like you can have a bad day. For instance, at that time, I was pretty much a newlywed. I didn't marry a couple of years. But you come to work. And there's guys that come to work and they're tired because they were in court all day or they're working on another job. They're carpenters, they're electricians, so they're making more money because you can't make enough money on a police department. So that's what they're doing. And they come to work and they're exhausted. So wait, so, wait, hold on. I've heard degrees of this. It's hmm. not a surprise to me, but let's talk about that for a second. You're working a full-time job as a cop in Chicago mm-hmm. and you're working a full-time job in the trades. That's Mm -hmm. insane. Well, let's put it this way. They're not working for a contractor. These guys had their own businesses, whether it be concrete, whether it be a tuck pointer or an electrician, they had that knowledge and ability. So they're not going to let it go to waste. So they're doing jobs and making more money doing that. But there are the police too. You're a, police officer but you're also running another business and you're managing that business probably somewhat while you're policing let's face it people are human oh yeah oh there's no doubt this is pre-cell phone you're gonna have guys that are gonna sit there you're gonna go to a pay phone or try to be as quiet as they can but you know we hear some of the stuff they're saying and then you get guys that are working straight midnight because they want to do the least they can i don't know how they equated that because midnight's one of the busiest shifts around. That's when all the cockroaches come out. You would be out in the street and you see one guy would be driving and you wave to him when he went by and there's his partner. He's got his head playing against the window. He's found asleep because he's working another job. Whether that was the case or not, if you were calling for help, that partner would notch that guy in the side and say, hey, get up. You're here to radio going crazy. Someone's calling for help and, and they're going. Whether he's tired or not, he's going to get out of that car and do his job. 
You're in this probationary period. You get through it. Are there any aha moments? Are there events that are ramping towards something that's a change for you or a direction you want to go in? Do you have a game plan? This is where I'm at. I want to be a detective or are you just taking it day by day? I'm more or less taking it day by day. I never had any aspirations to really be a detective because although it was a little intriguing, some of the work they did, the other chasing murderers and stuff on a regular basis, but they do that on a beat card too can come across guys, and we did. When I got on tack, even in, in uniform in a beat car, I actually made a couple arrests for murders. I was off, so I gave one to uh, a guy who worked on the tax team at the time, and him and his partner arrested him, and they, they actually put me on the arrest report because it was the information. I called them and told them where the guy was at. I looked at some of these guys who were promoted. I was happy for them. I don't know if I was ready. Some of these guys, there were a few people that made detective after a very short time on the job, like two or three years. And to me, I just thought, eh, I don't really think you are a police yet that you're ready to be a detective. The sergeant was a good position. Of course, more money, more money in your pension and retirement. But the sergeant position is the frontline person that when shit rolls downhill, goes to the sergeant, and then the sergeant's going to shit on you. They're the guys that are out there riding around in the field every day with the police. Uh, not in the same car, of course, their own car. Sometimes you will encounter a situation on a call where you have to call for a sergeant. You try not to do that because they have their own stuff going on. They have paperwork they have to do continually. It's a very demanding position. It's a management position, but it's a lower management position. And when I was in seven, there were a good majority of the sergeants that worked there. A couple of them that I could think of offhand, but one of them was Jim Dignan, and this guy was, he was a police. He was a patrolman out on the south side in a fast district. I want to think he was in five at one time, and then he was a tactical officer in plain clothes. So he was out there running and gunning, looking for, for the bad guy all the time. And he was the police, and he wasn't going to quit being the police. Jim Dignan was not charged. You'd hear him on the radio, 720, I'm going to put a stop on a car uh, westbound, got three heads in it. So you started heading that way. 99% of the time, if he's stopping somebody, he's got a good reason for it because he's got good sense, the intuition of being a policeman because he's not only a sergeant, he's always been the police. And then you'd hear him jumping, running out of his car, chasing somebody on foot. And a guy with a gun running, you hear him, he's running, he's on the radio. And after it's all over, you kind of laugh at him. Why don't you just drive around, man? You never sleep because if you didn't find something, one of those sergeants was going to find something and make the night a little more exciting or one of the other beat cars. There was always something going on there. People constantly getting shot. People constantly getting killed. Fires, all kinds of robbers, one after another. Typical battery, battery in progress. There were so many fights. Neil, you just didn't have time. Just like uh, giving people tickets. You had guys who went out there and they're writing people tickets. Like the gangbangers, like we talked about. Hurt them, fuck them. They're the ones that are out there doing the no good to people and doing the bad on the street. Don't keep stopping people going to work and then they don't have a driver's license or they're suspended because of their insurance or whatever called TVB. So you got to take them in. They have to post bail, find their name, or they have to pay cash bail to get out, and then they walk out of the station. But to me, you're in there for a fucking hour on a traffic stop. Does that mean your beat's not being covered? So the next beat's got to pick up the slack. Or another beat's got to pick up the slack. Then you're a nerd or fucking around, having a cup of coffee or whatever. To me, it was just bullshit. Fucking tickets. You're making the city money. But on the other hand, like I said, it, to me, it was a waste. Um, and in your mind, dangerous. 
part of the job. It really is. You see somebody not stop at a stop sign. You're like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's put a stop on them, see what the story is. You got two or three dudes in a car. They roll with stop signs. You're like, these guys are a little early. Let's see what the deal is. Get behind them. Call the plate in. Yeah, uh, hey, that car was just taken from the second district in an armed robbery earlier today. So now you you got a good one, man. Now they're taking off. Got a little bit of a pursuit. City didn't call them off. You know, your sergeants did not call those pursuits off as much as they did after some high-profile incidents involving the police where accidents occurred and people were either killed or injured. Initially, when I came out, you're chasing people. I chased a kid who was 12 years old. Fucking kid was standing up driving the car. A hot car. Hot car. He was standing up, driving the car. Was there, a, was there a seat in the car? Yeah, there was, but he was so fucking short, he was standing up. I don't know how he was pushing that gas pedal and controlling the steering wheel at the same time. It was the craziest thing. We got up on the side of him, and I'm looking. I'm like, this fucking, what the fuck? Look at the size of this kid. I said, is that a fucking midget? But it was a kid. So we're driving, chasing him. We got fucking 20 cars coming with us. Different districts get notified. Get the state police get notified. Whips down, takes the Stevens Expressway ramp, can't make the turn to T intersection at Kedzie, exit, hits the embankment, and bails out, starts running, get him in custody. And I'm like, what the fuck? 12 year old kid. Jesus Christ, man. You can't make this shit up. It's just hilarious. But one of the sergeants told me, get back to the fucking district. I called that off. And he didn't, he didn't call it off. I think he was sleeping, to be honest with you, because he looked like it when he came to the scene. Thank God it was on midnight, which was great. There were kids out there in that district that you got to know. There were some bad kids, man. There's a kid, his name was Terry Green. They called him Little Terry. This fucking kid would always carry a gun. He had GD, gangster disciple. He started doing their dirty work. I was pretty impressed in the district, all the watches. And, and I'm sure it worked like that in most of the past districts. These guys were out there doing doing police work all the time. Right before I got there, there was an incident that occurred where a cab driver, I can't remember the guy's name, Ali Wally or something like that. He was stopped 69th and Elizabeth by a guy who I would later work with a few times, who was a suburban policeman and then came over to Chicago, an Army veteran, Danny Duffy, great guy, hard worker, very good policeman. Danny Duffy stopped this guy, this cab driver, don't know what the specifics were, you know, what the conversation was, but the guy shot Danny, produced a gun and shot him. Danny was wounded, and then there was another guy who responded uh, when Danny was on the radio. His name was Greg Matura. Greg might have even been on the scene at the same time, backing him up on a stop, because Greg put his hand on the gun when he shot Danny, and Greg lost part of his fingertip. And then there were a couple other guys that got some glass shards when he shot at them. And they were hit in the face with the shards of glass. Then the policeman was working by himself. His name was Arnold Martinez, Arnie Martinez. He ended up shooting this guy. Didn't kill him. The only reason he didn't kill him is because ammunition they supplied us at the time was department issued. And it was 38 caliber plus P, they called it. I don't know where the city got it because it was garbage. When Arnie shot him, one or two of the rounds didn't even go through the seat uh, when he was shooting at the guy. Let me throw a little yeah. detail onto this one. Chicago Tribune... 1989, cabbie who shot three cops gets prison. A taxi driver who shot three Chicago police officers last year was sentenced Wednesday to 120 years in prison by a judge who said, quote, I don't want to see you on the streets again, unquote. It was the maximum sentence that Jamala 
Alawali, 53, could have received for wounding the officers in a wild shootout that started when he was pulled over for a routine traffic violation. I am pleased with the verdict. Daniel Duffy, the most seriously injured of the three officers, said after the sentencing. That was right before I came out of the academy. Danny Duffy, great guy, hardworking guy. It wore on him because he went through some health problems from being shot. He ended up taking his own life years down the road, not too long after, probably like within five years, maybe even less. You're in the seventh, earning your stripes, ultimately moved towards this SOS unit. There was a big man in Statue. His name was Ron Lewis, a black guy. Easy going, funny, great guy, and a worker, but not someone you want to get pissed off because he was just, he had a hands like ham hocks. I mean, these things were huge, man. Never saw him lose his cool. You know, he would tell people, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you again. And that's all he had to say because he was a big boy. So Ron asked me, would you have an issue working with me as a partner? And I said, no, absolutely not. And then I would see each other and joke and laugh. And he didn't have much more time than me. I think he had another year or two. To me, him asking me, I was kind of honored that he would ask me to be his partner because the guy was a good guy. And he was down there working plain clothes. And I said, oh, man, you know, I want to get on a taxi down there. Is Ron what you would call real police? Was he in that category? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Ron was the real police. Between him and I, if we were ever to become partners, we're not catching anybody in a foot chase. He's a big, beefy dude. And I'm as fast as a gazelle with a lion on my back. I'm not chasing anybody down. And that would work to my benefit later because we just did things differently. That's all. When he asked me, he ran it by tech lieutenant who had just made lieutenant from being a sergeant. His name was Dave Doherty. He would later go on to be a commander. Doherty told him no. I don't know what the reason was. Doherty, I only had a couple interactions with him. Can't be everybody's friend. And I don't know if I rubbed him wrong or what, but he just didn't get along. How many years um, in are you at this point? Couple. So you're like two, two and a half years in. Yeah, yeah. When I hear this tactical team, if I'm moving from being a street cop to the tactical team, does that mean I can no. be more aggressive? It sounds like SWAT to me. No, 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 it's not. It's not. It is. Uh, so to make the tactical team, uh, they look for people who are more aggressive, go-getters. They're out there locking people up. There's guys like that just drive around. I used to call them police impersonators. They drive around wasting fucking gas all day. And answer your radio calls, but they're not looking to lock anybody up. They don't want to be involved in that shit. But I'm thinking, well, then you should have been a fucking crossing guard. You get paid to be out there and be the police. Go out there and be the police. Don't drive around stopping and talking to women or standing on a corner and trying to impress them and all that. Trying to get a date. Go out there and fucking back your guys up. Do your job. Lock people up that are doing bad. There were guys that didn't want to be involved in that. Anyway, you go on a tag team, it's got its perks. When you're in plain clothes, it's kind of nice. Typical tactical uniform, jeans, gym shoes, t-shirt. In the summer months, with your best cover. In winter, when I first came on, it was pretty funny. It was like almost standard issue. If you were on a tag team, you had to go out and buy an army field jacket. Now, I don't know if you know what that is, but they are the green, olive drab, United States military winter coat. So it's like a field jacket, they call it. So it was funny because the fucking guys would go out, these tech guys, they'd go to a army surplus store. Some of them were vets. They had the right to wear those jackets. I wasn't in the military. I'm not putting a fucking army jacket on and driving around. Like, you know, they all fucking dressed the same. One of my partners went up the chain and became a commander, retired as commander. Him and I used to laugh. 
we'd see these guys in the district working as patrolmen. And then the next thing you know, you heard they got transferred and they were successful and they went to narcotics. You'd see them walking out of the building and they would have standard issue ponytail, white guys, ponytail, goatee and mustache that were going to go out there and fucking buy all the dope in the world. I don't give a fuck if you got a ponytail and a goatee and a mustache. You still look and smell like the police, man. You're the police. Now, these dudes will sell dope to pretty much anybody. But it just made me laugh that these guys really thought that ponytail, goatee, and mustache would really fool these fucking dudes out here. Oh, you must be narcotics now, right? Because you got a goatee and a mustache and a ponytail. It was like a standard issue kit like they'd buy at a fucking costume store. There's nothing good about a a man in a ponytail with a goatee and a... (laughs) Adam Baldwin, no, my no. bodyguard, green no, army yeah, jacket. Yeah. So anyway, the guy didn't let me on the tag team. He just said no to him, and he didn't give a reason, but he probably gave him a reason. Probably said, oh, I don't like that asshole or something. Then he tried to be phony. Every time I see him, hey, Jerry, how you doing? Yeah, hey, boss, how are you? Fuck you. I jag off. This was a letdown for you. It was. I just said, we're not getting on the fucking tag team when this guy's here. And did you and say something couple- to him, or you just no, that no, just furthers no. the problem? Well, Ronnie asked him and said he wanted to bring me down so I could put the kibosh to it. There were some sergeants that were working down there. One of them would later become one of my lieutenants in special operations, John Baranowski. And he's like, yeah, you try to talk up for your gear and this and that. This was right after my brother Billy got killed. So he kind of knew the circumstances because he knew that I lost a brother and he told me he was sorry and all that. But he said, yeah, I tried to talk up for you, but maybe not this time. But then when they have some more openings, I'm like, yeah, yeah, thanks. But I'm like, fuck that. I wouldn't worry that. Not him, the sergeant, but the lieutenant. I'm like, fuck him. I won't go down there now. Wouldn't work for him again. If, if he turns me down, I'm not going to go down there again. Let's stop there. Stay with us for Conversation 4, in which we detail Jerry's ascent through the 7th District and an assignment to Gangs West. Thank you for listening. Things are about to start ramping up. <laughs> <laughs>